Okay, this morning, um, I will not be preaching this morning. Uh, Brian Gill, as I mentioned earlier, is uh, him and his family, Michelle, they're going to be leaving and moving to Georgia. And so uh, he's going to come and uh, preach this morning and share the word of God with us. And uh, Brian has been uh, working with us uh, in ministry here as a, as a deacon, but his real passion is to be in pastoral ministry. And, uh, and so that where he wants to go. And so he's, uh, he's been filling in for me from time to time when I'm not here. And so, Brian, why don't you come and preach the word of God to us? And uh, I do want to mention again, if you didn't hear it, but right after we're, our service, we're going to have a time of fellowship and cake in the back uh, just to uh, give a farewell to the gills as they head off uh, tomorrow morning. All right? So, Brian, when you come, take your Bibles and turn to Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. Good morning. Let's open with a brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, the Lord Jesus' day. It's the best day of the week, and we love Sunday school and church and everything that happens during the rest of the day, home groups, and it's a special day. And we really thank you also for um, the preaching of your word. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that today's preaching will be encouraging to Pastor Bobby and also to the other leadership and the elders in this church and, and everybody who serves and to all the people who faithfully come here. I pray that um, we'll be challenged and encouraged today to be more faithful in preaching and sharing Scripture. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Preach the Word. Preach the Bible. Preach the whole counsel of God. Why and how do we preach the Word here at CBC? That's Calvary Baptist Church. My preaching this morning will partially answer this. The biblical answers to this biblical question are to be found in the biblical context of our biblical text, 2 Timothy 4, 1-5. I'm actually going to focus on Two of the following four reasons for preaching the Bible from these five verses, and I'll be really focusing on the first two verses. But here's four reasons from these five verses, reasons for preaching the Bible. One, the Bible will be used by Jesus at the judgment seat to evaluate our works. Two, the Bible commands us to preach the word. Three, the Bible must be preached while some people will still listen. And four, the Bible equips us to fulfill our ministry. If we lived in Puritan times, I would have the liberty to preach for two hours, and you would love to have it so. The shorter title for my sermon would then be something like this, 13 riveting reasons to preach the Bible an introduction to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2a, preach the word. My sermon introduction would have then proceeded like this for reasons to preach the Bible. One, the Bible provides discernment to avoid ungodly and false teachers, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Two, the Bible helps us to follow the godly example of Paul's perseverance under persecution in 2 Timothy 3, 10-14. 3. The Bible points to Jesus Christ alone for salvation in 2 Timothy 3:15. 4. The Bible alone is inspired by God in 2 Timothy 3:16. 5. The Bible helps us to grow spiritually also in 2 Timothy 3:16. The 6. The Bible equips us for ministry in 2 Timothy 3, 17. 7. The Bible will be used by Jesus at the judgment seat to evaluate our works. In 2 Timothy 4, 1. 8. The Bible commands us to preach the word. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. 9. The Bible must be preached 
while some people will still listen. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. 10. The Bible helps us to fulfill our ministry in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. 11. The Bible shows us how to be an acceptable sacrifice in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Number 12. The Bible encourages us to finish well with no regrets in 2 Timothy 4, 7. In 13. The Bible applied leads to heavenly rewards in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Glory to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all these reasons and many, many more for preaching the Bible. These Bible verses before and after 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, provide us with a broader context that aids our understanding and appreciation and applications for preaching the Bible. Let's enjoy a brief glimpse of the panoramic view of the wider biblical context. The two tremendous books of First and Second Timothy. The biblical mandate to preach the word is an integral part of the biblical philosophy of ministry that Calvary Baptist Church, CBC, embraces wholeheartedly. In First and Second Timothy, the Apostle Paul is not only instructing Timothy, but all pastors everywhere down through the ages. One of the, one of the top biblical expositors of our time, John MacArthur, is John MacArthur. He gives a summary of how pastors can faithfully shepherd biblically. This amazing outline is not only for shepherds in the pulpit, it is also beneficial for the sheep, so to speak, in the pew. Just listen to this. Don't try to write down these scripture references. Just listen and enjoy it. Correct those teaching false doctrine and call them to a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. In 1 Timothy 1, 3-5, fight for divine truth and for God's purposes, keeping his own faith and a good conscience. In 1 Timothy 1, 18-19, pray for the lost and lead men of the church to do the same. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-8. Call women in the church to fulfill their God-given role of submission and to raise up godly children, setting an example of faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9-15. through Carefully select spiritual leaders for the church on the basis of their giftedness, godliness, and virtue in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-13. Recognize the error of the source of error, and those who teach it. And point these things out to the rest of the church in 1 Timothy 4, 1-6. Constantly be nourished on the words of Scripture and its sound teaching, avoiding all myths and false doctrines in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Discipline himself for the purpose of godliness in 1 Timothy 4, 7. Boldly command and teach the truth of God's Word in 1 Timothy 4, 12. Be a model of spiritual virtue that all can follow. Again, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, faithfully read, explain, and apply the Scriptures publicly in 1 Timothy 4, 13 to 14. Be progressing towards Christ's likeness in his own life in 1 Timothy 4, 15 to 16. Be gracious and gentle in confronting the sin of the people in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Give special consideration and care to those who are widows. In 1 Timothy 5, 3-16. Honor faithful church leaders who work hard. In 1 Timothy 5, 17-21. Choose church leaders with great care, seeing to it that they are both mature and proven. In 1 Timothy 5, 22. Take care of his physical condition so he is strong to serve. In 1 Timothy 5, 23. Teach and preach principles of true godliness helping his people discern between true godliness and mere hypocrisy. In 1 Timothy 5, 24, all the way to chapter 6, verse 6. Flee the love of money. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 7 through 11. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. In 1 Timothy 6, 11. Fight for the faith against all enemies and attacks. In 1 Timothy 6, 12. Instruct the rich to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. 
Guard the word of God as a sacred trust and a treasure. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 20 to 21. Continuing into 2 Timothy, Paul reminded Timothy to keep, keep the gift of God in him fresh and useful. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, not be timid but powerful. In 2 Timothy 1, 7, never be ashamed of Christ or anyone who serves Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, hold tightly to the truth and guard it. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Be strong in character, 2 Timothy 2.1. Be a teacher of apostolic truth, so that he may reproduce himself in faithful men, in 2 Timothy 2.2. Suffer difficulty and persecution willingly, while making the maximum effort for Christ, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3-7. through 7. Keep his eyes on Christ at all times, in 2 Timothy 2.8-13. through Lead with all authority, in 2 Timothy 2.14. Interpret and apply Scripture accurately in 2 Timothy 2.15. Avoid useless conversation that leads only to ungodliness in 2 Timothy 2.16. Be an instrument of honor set apart from sin and useful to the Lord in 2 Timothy 2.20-21. Flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, and love in 2 Timothy 2.22. Refuse to be drawn into philosophical and theological wrangling in 2 Timothy 2, verse 23. Not argue, but be kind, teachable, gentle, and patient, even when he is wronged in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. Face dangerous times with a deep knowledge of the Word of God in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 15. Understand that Scripture is the basis and content of all legitimate ministry in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. Preach the Word in season and out of season, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with great patience and instruction in 2 Timothy 4, 1-2. Be sober in all things, 2 Timothy 4, 5. Endure hardship again in 2 Timothy 4, 5. Do the work of an evangelist also in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. This completes the partial outline of these two past oral epistles as part of my introduction. Is there any book besides the Bible that is sufficient for such a monumental task of pastoral ministry? Here is the very brief historical context for 2 Timothy. Based on the above outline, you can see that the Apostle Paul wrote First and 2 Timothy to encourage the young pastor Timothy. Paul was, was encouraging Timothy to be a strong and faithful pastor and leader in the church at Ephesus. Timothy faced many challenges, especially from false teachers. Remember, Paul warned that this would happen in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 30. It is because of this danger of false teachers and false teaching that sound, healthy, true doctrine is emphasized. It's so important. 2 Timothy was the last book that Paul wrote. Shortly before he was martyred under Nero's persecution of Christians. As history has shown, a person's last words before death are usually very very telling. How much more is this true of the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest Christians who ever lived? Furthermore, he is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In our biblical text today, 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is actually the last chapter of his last book. Paul was not making suggestions to his young protege in the faith. Paul used nine imperatives or commands for Timothy to faithfully obey, to discharge the duties of his pastoral ministry. Paul was a spiritual giant. By God's grace, he exemplified with spiritual integrity, with excellence, every single command he gave to his young soldier in the faith. Consider Paul's steadfast perseverance under severe persecution for his faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Remember, remember where Paul was not when he wrote 2 Timothy. He was not under house arrest in Rome as he experienced for about two years when he wrote the prison epistles 
including the book of Philippians. No, this was Paul's second Roman imprisonment. He was in a dungeon. Paul was in a cold, dark, smelly, probably rat-infested prison. He was awaiting a cruel death. He was about to be executed, martyred for preaching the word. Paul was in chains, but the word of God could not be chained. Now let's proceed to the reading and preaching of 2 Timothy chapter 4, focusing on, at this point, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. For more context, I'm going to read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12, all the way to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, beginning with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you... Be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The first reason for preaching the Bible from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4-1 is this. The Bible will be used by Jesus at the judgment seat to evaluate our works. Again, chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Paul writes this. I solemnly charge you. This charge is a command. This charge, this command is a forceful order for Timothy and all preachers. We must obey this command wholeheartedly. I solemnly charge you shows the seriousness of what Paul is saying to Timothy in this verse. If this verse, if it ended right here, that alone would be plenty of motivation for Timothy to preach the word, wouldn't it? But this charge to Timothy is amplified with the accountability of two witnesses. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. What could be more serious than to know that we who preach sermons are accountable to our omniscient, all-knowing God. James chapter 3, verse 1, admonishes all teachers of the Bible about the seriousness of teaching because of the higher level of accountability it brings. James chapter 3, verse 1 warns, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur stricter judgment. Timothy was faithfully to follow Paul's preaching example in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 2, 17. This excellent cross-reference scripture incorporates both Paul's excellent example 
accountability to God, and even addresses false teachers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul writes, For we are not like many peddling or corrupting the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God. We speak in Christ in the sight of God. We see two members of the Trinity here in 2 Timothy 4.1 and in 2 Corinthians 2.17. God refers to God the Father and Christ is God the Son. The immediate context for preaching accountability to God is 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16a. All scripture is inspired by God. Preachers have an awesome accountability because we are preaching the inspired word of God in the presence of God. This accountability, this amazing accountability is amplified again. This accountability for correctly handling the word of God in preaching is especially to the second member of the Trinity, to Christ Jesus The accountability for preaching sound doctrine is to Jesus as judge. Our scripture here says Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living, and the dead. There are various judgments in the Bible. This verse actually includes the three major judgments. The judgment that is emphasized here is the judgment seat of Christ for believers. The judgment seat for Christians is not is not a judgment for condemnation for our sins. This is a judgment for the evaluation of our works, our service. Remember Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. True believers have eternal security because Jesus was condemned on Calvary's cross for our sin debt. Jesus was forsaken by the Father so that we could be forgiven forever. Here are parts of some of the biblical references to the judgment seat of Christ for believers, for genuine followers of Jesus. Part of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, encourages our highest ambition in life, which is to please Jesus, our Lord. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. What do believers appear for? The Bible says in Romans chapter 14, verse 12. In Romans 14, 12. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Part of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 3, 13. Soberly states, The fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Whatever is not burned up will be our rewards. Whatever is burned up represents our loss of rewards. Let me sternly warn you and me. Some of our works will be burned up by Jesus' perfectly just consuming fire of divine discernment. The basis of this divine discernment has been revealed to us in the Bible. Therefore, the Bible will be used by Jesus at the judgment seat to evaluate our works. Anything, even good things done for the wrong motive will be burned up. Wimpy, shallow doctrine, Man-centered, non-biblical sermonettes will go up in smoke. In glorious contrast, glorious contrast, preaching strong, doctrinally deep, Christ-centered, biblical sermons by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God will not be burned up. Faithful ministry of the Word of God is to build on the one and only foundation of Christ, the foundation of Christ. Let's do our work with the quality building materials. Yes, the eternal building materials the Bible describes as gold, silver, and precious stones. Let's store up treasures in heaven to God's glory and our enjoyment forever. Let's be steadfast, unwavering like Paul. He was confident that he would receive the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. 
That crown, that crown symbolizes our reward for faithful service to our precious Savior. Your accountability may not be as a preacher or teacher at CBC, but all Christians, all Christians are accountable to be faithful in sharing Scripture. Let's live for Christ now. Let's work for Christ now. Only one life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We have additional accountability to Christ Jesus with the next part of 2 Timothy 4.1. Who is to judge the living and the dead? Who is to judge the living and the dead? Both the grammar and this phrase both point to the imminency of the judgment seat uh, for us believers. The idea with to judge is this. Christ Jesus is about to judge. Furthermore, the living and the dead reminds us of the imminent rapture of the church. According to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. The judgment seat for believers occurs after the rapture, but before the second coming of Jesus Christ. This second coming of Jesus Christ is shown here by the phrase, and by his appearing in his kingdom. And by his appearing in his kingdom. The judgment here is called the judgment of the nations. This judgment in Matthew 25, 31 to 46 actually involves individuals. The judgment of believers and unbelievers. For what? For entrance into the literal 1,000 year millennial kingdom here on earth. Maybe you're wondering, how is this motivating for our ministry of preaching the word today? One of the things we preach is the gospel. Part of this is doing the work of an evangelist in 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. This includes pleading with lost sinners to flee from the wrath to come by fleeing to Christ Jesus for salvation from that wrath. The punishment for unbelievers in hell is called everlasting punishment by Jesus himself. Moreover, the seven-year tribulation period between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ is God's terrifying judgment unleashed in theory on an unbelieving and sinful world. Another application for preachers and all believers is located in one of the biblical descriptions of this frightening day of the Lord, this time of darkness and destruction. Part of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6, has the application in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. Therefore, let us be alert and sober or self-controlled. Being sober or self-controlled is also one of the commands Paul gives Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. The first main reason, and there's a few reasons within, within this text, verse 1, the first main reason to preach the Bible is that the Bible will be used by Jesus at the judgment seat to evaluate our works, believers' works. The second reason to preach the Bible is located in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2a. Preach the Word! This is perhaps the most important reason. This second reason for preaching the Bible is the fact that the Bible itself commands us to preach the Bible. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse I'll be reading that a few times today. You may be able to memorize it. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Preach means to herald. Preach means to proclaim. To preach is to herald the word of God. To preach is to proclaim the word of God. In Paul's day, 
a ruler or a king would have a herald who would make announcements to the people. And to be effective as a herald, the herald would make announcements to the people in a loud and clear voice. In a loud and clear voice. The people needed to hear him so they could obey his message. The herald did not have the liberty to change the message from the king. Likewise, preachers, the heralds of God's message don't have the liberty to change the message they must give for their king, the king of kings. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 1. Isaiah 58, verse 1. Thunders. Cry loudly. Do not hold back. Raise your voices like a trumpet. And declare to my people their transgression into the house of Jacob, their sins. A faithful preacher does not preach whatever he feels like. A faithful preacher does not preach something just because it is popular. A faithful preacher has the biblical mandate to preach the word of God. The most important responsibility of a pastor is to preach the Bible. Timothy and all pastors are to follow the Apostle Paul's example in Acts chapter 20, verse 27. Pastor teachers are to preach the whole counsel of God. Pastor teachers are to declare the whole purpose of God. The entire Bible must be preached, not just parts of the Bible. Difficult doctrines like election, which you ought to love if you're a Christian. Difficult doctrines like election cannot be omitted. Just because some people have a hard time believing them. At CBC, the leadership's conviction is this. The best way to preach the word, to preach the Bible, is this. Expository preaching. Expository preaching. Verse by verse through books of the Bible. Our older CBC welcome pamphlet. We have a new one, I think says this about expository preaching. Quote, The purpose of preaching is to explain God's word to his people and to exhort them to obey it in every sphere of life. We are dedicated to systematic verse-by-verse preaching through books of the Bible, not going beyond it nor leaving anything out. When you go to our, C- unquote, when you go to our CBC website, on the front page, you see this. I love it. Committed to... This is in all caps. Solid. Biblical. Preaching. Filling the soul with God's word. Not man's opinions. Unquote. This dedication to expository preaching is one of our distinctives that makes us different than most of the churches in New Jersey. Our excellent website also says this about expository preaching. You can learn a lot from a church website. Although this approach to God's Word is somewhat out of fashion today, we believe that when studying God's Holy Word, it's important that we don't read our own meaning into the text or merely use a verse as a springboard for telling nice stories. Instead, we want our pastor to diligently discern the message God intended to say by carefully studying a passage's context, its grammatical structure, its relation to other texts, and its historical background. In short, we want our pastor to recover a passage's original intended meaning and faithfully proclaim that meaning to us. Haddon Robinson defines expository preaching this way, quote, the presentation of biblical truth derived from and transmitted through a historical, grammatical, spirit-guided study of a passage in its context which the Holy Spirit applies first to the life of the preacher and then through him to his congregation, unquote. A historical example that Timothy would have been familiar with from the sacred writings of the Old Testament would be Ezra. Ezra was the scribe priest who led the second return of Judah's return to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. Ezra practiced what he preached. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 states, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. This heart preparation for the man of God 
This is prayer, persistent prayer, passionate prayer, praying the Bible. This heart preparation for the man of God ideally leads to being anointed with the Holy Spirit of God, which is the key to preaching powerfully the Word of God. Nehemiah chapter 8, in Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra and others, it's shown here that they're leading in expository preaching. Ezra actually read from the book of Moses. Listen to this. To all the people, even children, from early morning until midday. Sounds like a long sermon. The Bible says they were attentive in their listening. They were attentive in their listening. Are you attentive in your expository listening to expository sermons? Part of Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 7 says that the leaders explained, explained from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they could understand. Verse 8, I'm going to read that again. They read distinctly from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. The glorious result of this exposition, this breaking down of the text into understandable parts, was a breaking down of the people with a godly sorrow, contrition, and weeping for their sin. They wept greatly. Why? They wept greatly because they heard and understood the exposition of God's word. Next, they rejoiced greatly because their leaders encouraged them to move on from sorrow to embrace this in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Preach the word. Although Timothy may have been timid and fearful uh, of man at times, he was commanded to boldly, to bravely proclaim God's word. He and all preachers must courageously preach the Word of God. Faithful preachers must fear God, not man. Our aim, like Paul, is not to please men, but God, to glorify God in our preaching. The Word of God includes the gospel of God. It was in the context of preaching the Galatians that Paul wrote this. It was in the context of preaching the biblical gospel... In eternal contrast, in eternal contrast to the false gospel of faith plus works of who? The Judaizers. It was in that context that Paul wrote Galatians chapter one, verse ten. Galatians one ten. For am I now pleasing the fa- for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant or slave of Christ. Unquote. Consider the great Scottish preacher of the Reformation, John Knox. He feared God so much that he did not fear any man. John Knox prayed, give me Scotland or I die. May God give you that kind of zeal, CBC. May God cause you to pray like this. Give me Central Jersey or I die. Speaking of the Reformation, sola scriptura, sola script. Torah. This is Latin for scripture alone. This was one of the rallying cries for the Protestant Reformation during the 1500s. Listen, because the Bible is inspired by God, and God cannot lie, the Bible is 100% true. Therefore, the Bible is 100% authoritative. To preach with God's authority, the Bible must be preached. To preach with the authority of heaven, the word which came down from heaven must be preached. This towering truth also applies to all Christians with respect to sharing scripture. You have authority to share confidently when you share scripture. Yes, you do. The question is not, the question is not, what do you think? The right question is this, what does God think? The Bible is the mind of God put into print. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. Christians, now more than ever, need to embrace Galatians chapter 4, verse 30. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 30, what saith the Scripture? 
A preacher preaches. What does he preach? The Word of God, the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Paul, as a loving but firm superior to Timothy, gives five imperatives or commands here with respect to preaching. The first command to be obeyed is this. Be ready. Be ready. Always be ready to preach the word. This command to be ready means this, that the preacher must always be on duty as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He is vigilant and ready to preach. He is to be on the alert to opportunities to preach. He is to seize any preaching opportunity presented to him. To be ready carries the idea of being prepared to preach. The preacher must always be ready, and you must always be ready to share the Scripture. How can you always, how can you always be ready? Is that possible? Yes, it is. We... We can always be ready to teach the truth by always soaking in the truth. Always reading and meditating and praying and obeying the scripture. Be a walking Bible. The apostle Peter tells us to always be ready to speak the truth. Even during tough times of persecution. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready. To make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet, with gentleness and reverence. That is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Always be ready. Are you ready? Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready in season and out of season. This expression, in season and out of season, that's interesting, isn't it? We should seriously study the scripture to always be ready to share the reason for our hope in any season. The reason for our hope is Jesus Christ. Preachers must be eternally vigilant to preach the word about the living word. In season and out of season means all seasons. All seasons. The colossal challenge here is to preach when it is convenient for the preacher and when it is not convenient for the preacher. The reality is that sometimes preaching is very difficult and not that satisfying. It can actually be terrifying. John Knox would sometimes weep for days before entering the pulpit to preach. Why? Because of the seriousness of preaching God's holy book. Paul himself modeled preaching in numerous heartbreaking circumstances including preaching right after being beaten up by mobs. He even used prison as his pulpit. In season and out of season, listen to this, also applies. It applies not only to the pulpit, but also to you in the pew. In season and out of season also means when preaching is not convenient to you, the hearer, the listener. For example... For various reasons, I'll let you fill in the blank. Sometimes it is challenging to successfully bring yourself and your family to CBC to serve and worship with your brethren. Oswald Chambers, in his classic devotional, Most for His Highest, admonishes us with this reality. If we only do what we are inclined to do, some of us would do nothing forever and ever. Sometimes we need to set aside our feelings and step out in faith to follow Jesus. In season and out of season means being prepared and willing to preach 24-7 at all times, in all places, to all people. No matter how many sermons are required. No matter how many or what type of personal sacrifices are involved. Now, let's look at how the preacher is to preach the word. How the preacher is to preach the word. We will also see how all Christians are to share Scripture. Biblical balance is the key here. Biblical balance is the key. Paul instructs Timothy with three commands here. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. 
reprove, rebuke, exhort. To reprove and rebuke are similar in meaning, but they are not exactly the same. There is a shade of difference between the meaning and intensity between these two words. Some of you may learn something new here, which is one of the challenges in expository preaching. Bring out something new that's in there, but it takes work to dig it out, to explain something that's difficult. Some of you may learn something new, or if you listen closely, that's important. These two words go together here, reprove and rebuke, go together. Sort of like a dynamic duo, if you will. Reprove is similar to reproof in 2 Timothy 3.16. To reprove is translated as convince in the New King James Version. I mention this to help you understand what reprove means. To reprove means to prove to you, to convince you with biblical evidence that a particular belief or behavior is wrong. The goal of reproving is to convince you that a particular belief or behavior is sin. The progression is like this. The goal of reproving is to convince you in order to convict you of the sin of wrong belief and or behavior. To be convicted, pardon me, to be convinced, to be convinced means you agree that something is sin. To be convicted means you agree, at least intellectually, that you are guilty of wrong belief or behavior. The preacher is reproving you to help you see your sin from God's holy perspective. This takes careful biblical argument to mount a compelling biblical case that you are indeed guilty of a very, very specific sin. In other words, to reprove of sin is to convince you that it is sin. So that you are convicted of the guilt of this sin. So that your sinful beliefs or behavior can be corrected by your grace-empowered repentance. To succinctly summarize, reproving is convincing, leading to convicting with the goal of correcting. Does the word reprove contain the meaning of rebuke in it? Yes. But our next command to Timothy actually says rebuke. This small difference between these two words actually makes a big difference in effective preaching of the word. Simply put, reprove says, this is the wrong way. Whereas rebuke says, how dare you go the wrong way? You rebel, you traitor, you ought to feel so ashamed for that sinful behavior. Rebuke. Logically follows after reprove. By, rebu- by rebuking the preacher sharpfully, forcefully, fearlessly, earnestly, zealously drives home the conviction of sin to the heart. The courageous preacher unflinchingly, undauntedly thrusts the dagger of the divine word into your insides. The preacher rebukes sharply by using the two-edged sword of God's word, God's living and active word, to cut deeply into your soul. This is like spiritual surgery. It doesn't feel good, but it's good for you. The faithful preacher preaches the undiluted word, and the Holy Spirit actually does spiritual surgery on you. Reverently speaking, along the same lines, The Holy Spirit is like a hound of heaven. He hunts out that secret sin. He can smell that stinking sin. He chases it down. You can't get away. He's on your trail. The Holy Spirit shines the blazing light of searching truth on that sin. By God's grace, with godly sorrow for that specific sin, hate it with the holy hatred. Kill it. Mortify it before it kills you and kills everything you hold dear. Smash that idol now before it's too late and it smashes you and your family and even the church family. To reprove and rebuke is the negative side of preaching. It has to be done. Nobody loves doing that. The goal of this negative side of heralding the word is the positive side of the healing of the word. 
the goal of reproving and rebuking is for you to repent. By repenting of that sin, by turning away from that sin, dear brethren, your sweet fellowship with God is restored in his presence is fullness of joy. What could be more positive than that? We ought to thank preachers for doing that. What I'm demonstrating now in the last few moments as I preach, as I transition is this exhortation, exhortation. This is the third command to exhort. Now this word exhort can mean admonish or warn. As we know, we study words as a range. What does the word mean in a particular context? This word can mean admonish or warn, but the context here has more of an emphasis on encouragement. This encouragement is needed. It's needed, especially after you have just been taken to the spiritual woodshed. Now the preacher comes alongside you to encourage you about the blessings of repentance and obedience. For example, 1 John 1.9 is so encouraging. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Biblical preaching is balanced preaching. It includes the negative and the positive. An old rule for preachers is this. He should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. He should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Warren Wiersbe explains unbalanced preaching this way. Unbalanced. If there is conviction but no remedy, we add to people's burdens. And if we encourage those who ought to be rebuked, we are assisting them in sin. Biblical preaching must be balanced preaching. Perhaps the simplest way I could say this, for even the children to understand this, now's a good time to look up since I mentioned you specifically. Balanced preaching is like a battery. Balanced preaching is like a battery. The battery for your toys has a positive and a negative side. Both sides must be included and plugged in right for the battery to work on your toys. Likewise, both sides, the positive and the negative, must be included for preaching to get us spiritually charged up, working, going in the right direction. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Notice the end of this verse. The end of this verse says, with great patience and instruction. With great patience and instruction. This phrase modifies how the pastor teacher is to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. He does all this with great patience and instruction. Maybe you're wondering, why does the preacher need great patience? Great patience is needed towards his sometimes stubborn sheep. Great patience is needed for stubborn sheep, some of which seem, always seem, to be wandering off into dangerous areas. Great patience is needed for stubborn sheep who will not listen to the loving, tender warnings of their caring shepherds. The loving shepherd is patient with his sheep. His Christ-like love is patient and kind Not just patience, but great patience is needed as a hedge against becoming exasperated or even angry towards the flock that God has entrusted to his shepherding, feeding, protecting, pastoral care. The word for great patience is translated as long-suffering in the King James Version. Long-suffering. The idea here, according to one well-known Greek scholar, is this, long-suffering, quote, Long-suffering speaks of that temper which does not easily succumb under suffering, of that self-restraint which does not hastily retaliate a wrong, unquote. This reminds me of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. 2 Timothy 2, 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, A, with gentleness, correcting those in opposition. 
The last word in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, is instruction. Instruction. Instruction is actually the first of first importance in preaching. Here the act of teaching is in view. The act of teaching is in view. Instruction here means teaching activity. The similar word is translated as doctrine in the beginning of verse 3 to emphasize the content of this instruction, the theology, etc. Things like the five solos of the Protestant Reformation I think of. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Bible alone, to the glory of God alone. I think of the doctrines of grace, which we embrace here at CBC. Biblical doctrines. Instruction. Some commentators refer to this as painstaking instruction. Painstaking instruction. I like that. This is spot on. The idea with painstaking stresses strenuous effort in teaching, carefulness in teaching, meticulousness in teaching, thoroughness in teaching, diligence in teaching, rigorous in teaching, earnest in teaching. We could add some more. Clearness in teaching, uh, preciseness. Notice the the phrase, with great patience and instruction goes together. That phrase goes together. There is a crucial connection here that another famous Greek scholar describes this way. Quote, long-suffering is to to be maintained against the temptation to anger presented by the obstinacy, that is stubbornness, of certain hearers. And such is to be met, not merely with rebuke, but also with sound and reasonable instruction in the truth. In other words, you should understand what you are being taught and you should perceive the reasonableness of biblical warnings from your pastor. Now let's put this modifying phrase in front of each of the previous three commands. That'll be helpful. The faithful preacher is to reprove with great patience and instruction. The faithful preacher is to rebuke with great patience and instruction. The faithful preacher is to exhort with great patience and instruction. As I said earlier, the best way to do all this is expository preaching. As a matter of fact, some people would argue if it's not expository, it's not even preaching. The best form of expository preaching is the systematic, sequential, verse-by-verse teaching through books of the Bible. However, there are other types of expository preaching. One type takes a tremendous amount of knowledge and skill to do properly. I am referring to topical expository preaching. This is appropriately and occasionally done here at CBC. Instead of a specific scriptural citation, our worship bulletin will say selected scripture along with the title for the sermon. Sometimes issues in our culture can be so pressing that sermons must be preached sometimes immediately, like after 9-11, that address these head-on for the edification of the saints. I bring this up for a reason. I bring this up to set up a very challenging, a very challenging ending to my sermon. We do not hide behind the pulpit here at CBC. Glory to God! May the 30 years of faithfulness that our Pastor Bobby has demonstrated from this pulpit continue even stronger into the future. According to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, 2 Timothy 3, 1, In these last days, we are living in stressful times, dangerous times, difficult times, perilous times. Perilous times is the best time to preach the timeless word of God. How? Fearlessly. Accordingly, listen closely to part of an article by R.C. Sproul Jr. from the Ligonier Ministries blog titled, Are We Hiding Behind Pulpits? Imagine, if you would, there was a small group of men caught up in a bizarre and hungry ideology. Imagine... They are committed to doing whatever it takes to enjoy the blessings of power and influence. Their stratagems range, range from sophisticated propaganda to political machinations to raw violence to quell those who stood in their way. 
Imagine that they had infiltrated the schools of the nation and were about the business of indoctrinating the children in their ideology. Finally, imagine that this fringe group was so consumed with hatred toward the religious people of their land who once had wielded influence that they wanted them silenced or destroyed. What should, in this context, the church do? Some would argue that if we don't preach where the battle is, we are not preaching at all. The late Francis Schaeffer, in his book, The Great Evangelical Disaster, quotes Martin Luther as saying this, quote Martin Luther, if I profess with the lattice voice in the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christianity, where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. Unquote. Others, however, insist that the church should never be held hostage by the issues of the day. That a message transcends petty political squabbles. We are, after all, called to preach the word, to make disciples of the nations. When we take sides on political issues, we lose our audience and damage our witness. Isn't it better that we should seek to win the ideologically confused by our love for them? Wasn't Jesus despised precisely because of his willingness to invest in the sinners of his day? Should we not do the same? Would it make a difference which perspective we ought to take if we were talking not about homosexuality, as that ideology. But we're instead talking of the Nazis. My description above fits both movements well. When Hitler came to power in Germany, the church there faced the same challenge we are beginning to face. The vast majority of churches in Germany rolled over, determined to keep their mouths shut on the Nazis, that they might maintain their position and influence. All they salvaged, of course, was their shame. A very few, the confessing church, took the better position. Many of them, including the courageous, the courageous Diedrich Bonhoeffer, rewarded for their fidelity with the honor of martyrdom. The church at large, however, when the cries of souls crammed into cattle cars on their way to death camps disturbed their worship, simply chose to sing louder to drown out those cries. Some would argue that the comparison is unfair. I might have so argued not long ago when, however, private citizens can be fined and go through forced re-education for the crime of not embracing gay marriage, we ought to at least begin to see the handwriting on the wall. Homo-fascism isn't incendiary rhetoric. You will be forced to care. Isn't a humorous exaggeration. These are the beginning of a new world and a new challenge. The question is, will the church preach the gospel at the point of attack? Or will we merely sing louder? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word tells us that it pertains to everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of, of Jesus. And we thank you uh, that it equips us and helps us. I pray that we're encouraged today to want to be more faithful to share scripture. I pray the leadership has, has been encouraged. Help us to be faithful and help us to share the gospel with people from every tribe, tongue, nation. And help us to uh, embrace and tell people... Um, that they can have their sins forgiven by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. And I pray we'll continue to be faithful to uh, preach the word 
and be committed to expository preaching. And I pray there'll be a, a renewal also in here at CBC of an attentiveness and want us to listen uh, as a form of worship to the expository preaching here and to uh, be equipped and, be, and to grow strong and to apply what they are learning. And I pray that will cause unity here at Calvary Baptist Church and that people will go out and share the gospel faithfully. Thank you so much uh, for Calvary Baptist Church and help her to continue to be faithful. Yes, to grow in faithfulness as they stand on your book, the Holy Bible. In Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.